Hello, dear friends, and welcome to the show. Greg Kokel here, your host. And I was just thinking a few moments ago that I have been opening the show like that for 33 years. That is, in February of this year, would have been 33, now in my 34th year, of welcoming people to the show. But I have been welcoming people to the Stand to Reason show for 30 years yesterday. May 1st was the 30th anniversary of Stand to Reason. Now, I actually don't really know how to respond to that. (laughs) Uh, It is so far beyond what I ever expected to do for Stand to Reason ever to be. I expected it to be. um, That I, I just... I'm a little bit overawed by it myself, and I, I it's almost a, uh, what's the word I was thinking of, not psychedelic, but another, not transcendent, but uh, who's, it's a kind of art like uh, Salvador Dali does, what kind of art that is, surreal, thank you, Amos, yeah, surreal. What's amazing to me is I can remember Salvador Dali, but I couldn't remember surreal. Okay, what's up with that? It is surreal. It is surreal. And I'm um, unspeakably thankful to participate in this enterprise for all of this time. And I thought on this, our anniversary, it would be um, maybe helpful to just give you a, a history, because a lot of you guys don't know how this all took place. Now, we are actually making a documentary about Stand to Reason, uh, and it's it's well on its way. A lot of the production work has been done, and now it's going into post-production. And Greg Cash is doing it. He's done our videos for reality and a whole bunch of other things. And it's going to be magnificent. It's going to be released in the end of August. And um, if you're in Southern California, you'll certainly have an opportunity to come and view it where we're releasing it at. I don't have all those details right now. We'll bring you up to speed on it. But this was not my idea. It was really the idea of of the team. And I thought, fine, you know, (laughs) you guys want to do the heavy lifting on that. Um, But it's given me occasion to be reflective on not just the last 30 years, but what brought us to the initial spot or brought me to that initial spot in the beginning. And so let me just give you a, a quick, if I can do that, characterization of the events that kind of fell into place, because they began falling into place uh, long before Stand to Reason started, years before. And uh, though I, I sound, may sound like a broken record at this point, and I used that metaphor to talk recently, and it gave me pause because I wonder how many people are out there that actually know what that means, a broken record. Maybe they know what it means, but they don't know the etymology of it, you know, or something, you know, where it all came from, because we don't use records anymore for the most part. But the broken record part is, and this is an observation of my life, it's not the way I plan my life, is blooming where you're planted. And being a, a, um, be, being a, a student of your craft. And as I look back at my life, I was just always taking the opportunities that were in front of me to do. I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was excessively ambitious. I just wanted to be productive. I wanted to be industrious. And that's true about my life in general. And when I became a Christian, 
I was asking myself, where can I do something with what I've just been given by God in terms of new life, a new understanding of the world, and uh, new opportunities to communicate that to others in some fashion? And uh, I remember I was not but six months old in Christ, and I said, I don't want to have a secular job for the rest of my life. Now, that was my fantasy, and I did not get into full-time ministry until about 15 years later. So, uh, just saying, (laughs) or maybe 12 or 13 years, something like that. It was a long wait, and a lot had to be done in my life, and a lot had to be done in the craft and also on on me as a follower of Christ to make me fit to do something meaningful, and that was kind of a painful process. But as time went on, I kept doing things. And I uh, remember watching some TV thing in my home in Carson while uh, I was working as a staff pastor at Hope Chapel in Hermosa Beach, and someone called and said, can we put your name in for religion on the line? And I said, I don't know what that is. Well, that's where on the ABC affiliate, you have a Roman Catholic priest, a Protestant minister, and a Jewish rabbi, and a talk show host who is also Jewish, and they mix it up for two hours on Sunday nights from 10 to midnight on religious matters. Would you like to do it? And I said, here, with pizza in hand, I said, sure, why not? And within a week, I got a call from Religion and Media, who sponsored that event, and put me on the show. Now, when I got there in the green room at 10 o'clock on Sunday night, I was shaking in my boots, and I, everybody I knew was praying for me. Uh, but I survived that first night, and then I was asked back again and survived the second and the third. And sometimes, honestly, I'd walk in at 10 o'clock at night, having committed myself for two hours, mixing it up with a Roman Catholic priest, a rabbi, and, 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 uh, and the talk show host, who was, as it turned out to be, Dennis Prager. That's where I met Dennis. That's when our relationship started, mid-80s. Okay, it's been a long time. And we're still going, which is great, because I have new opportunities now in view of that, but to bloom where I'm planted. But that's really another story. That's where that happened. And I'd come in uh, at quarter to 10. Nobody was there. Everything was locked down except for the one studio that one show was going on. And I'd head for the green room, and I'd lean against the wall put my forehead against the wall in the hallway, and I say, what are you doing here? Are you out of your mind? But there I was, nonetheless. And God carried me in those moments of weakness through that two-hour show, and when I was done, I said, well, that that went okay. Uh, Maybe I'll do it again. I did it 24 times in the next few years, and also a CBS TV religion show uh, that was parallel in style, but it was only half hour long. Still, it was uh, TV, and so got to do a lot of those, too. And so the point is, one thing led to another, and then soon after that, somebody that was working for the radio station, KBRT, in Southern California, asked if I'd like to test for a show. This is in fall of 1989. I said, okay. Uh, I tested. I got the show. I did three hours on Saturday and three hours on Sunday um, for a number of years, eight years, actually, with Crawford Broadcasting Network. And some of that time overlapped Stand to Reason, so that's when the show got changed in its name to Stand to Reason. And then we um, switched things around so that in me, instead of me getting paid by Crawford, who then owned this, the product, we I quit 
And then we bought the time back to stand a reason. So now we owned the product. And uh, but that all of that doing radio stuff early on from 1990 to 1993 also was being faithful where I was put trying to learn now a new craft in the broader communication field, which is where my strengths were, and watched God use that, even though it was hard and it was challenging and it was a new area and I was a beginner and I didn't know what I was doing and no one taught me. I had to teach myself, but I was a student of my craft and so I found ways to make the show work. And uh, then in the spring of 1993, uh, February, actually, uh, I went to Madras, India, with a group from my local church, Hope Chapel in Hermosa Beach, and we did this every year, and there was a different staff pastor that would go with, and this year was my turn. But when I went to Madras, India, with the team, and they went out to villages and did stuff with kids and all this other stuff, I was plugged in to the Madras Bible Institute there, and also local universities and businessmen's luncheons and all kinds of things they set up that was uh, kind of appropriate for my capability. It was another opportunity to where I was being planted to bloom in a totally different way than I'd ever expected. All right. Lots of these things were different. I had a big businessmen's dinner that I was the keynote speaker. It was a totally secular enterprise, and I had to figure out a way to communicate and speak about leadership and somehow dovetail a spiritual message in at the same time. I don't remember what I said, but I just did it, all right? And there are lots of times in life where you're going to be faced with a new opportunity, and you're going to be saying, I don't have training. I don't have wherewith. I, I mean, I don't know how to do this. This is, we're breaking new ground. And that's how new ground gets broken. Tilled. New opportunities. You got to break new ground. And so it can be a little frightening, but I just stepped in and I did it. And then in the constellation of events that I participated in, the things I just described, Bobby Gupta, there at the Hindustan Bible Institute, said to me, took me aside one day, I'd been out running, you know, jogging through town, <laughs> trying not to get over, run over by the cattle in the streets. And I stopped in front of his office inside the compound for the Hindustan Bible Institute, and Bobby Gupta said, you need to do this thing that you do full-time, start an organization. There I was, in my tanny runners and shorts, and t-shirt dripping wet, thinking, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> I'm having fun. I'm doing fine where I'm at. I got a radio show for three years. I got uh, other things going on. Not interested. However, I will say at this time, there was this thought in my mind, and I talked to my pastor about it. I was doing radio for three years. I had already been uh, I had written some things that got some attention and won some awards, and so it looked like maybe there's a writing thing that could be fruitful in my life. The radio thing was being fruitful in my life so far, and I just was getting this sense that I'm going to be moving on from my pastoral role at Hope Chapel sometime in the future. I had no idea what that would look like, but I did take my pastor aside, had a meeting with him, and said, Zach, I don't know what's up, and I'm not and I'm not saying God's leading me this way and that way, because that isn't the way it's worked for me. I, I didn't get this nudge, nudge, go this way, go that way. That don't, 
That isn't the way I think that the Holy Spirit works. What God was doing was not leading me in the way people think of that. He was taking me. And I just had a sense that I was not long for the pastoral world. Let's put it that way. Something else was on the horizon. And maybe it was in writing, maybe it was in radio. I didn't know. But this is kind of the backdrop to this challenge by Bobby Gupta, which I just completely dismissed. And I came back to the States, and within about a month, Bobby Gupta was back in the States, in Hermosa Beach, and he asked me to breakfast. Brought a couple of other people there. One of them was Melinda Penner. And Melinda had been working with me at Hope Chapel as my aide, even though she's a school teacher, she was working as an aide part-time, helping me with the Hope Chapel Ministry Institute. That's a Christian ed program that was going then, and uh, and a bunch of other stuff that I was doing. And frankly, Melinda was magnificent. She just had this gift for organization, gift for getting things done, gift for seeing things that needed to be done. Anyway, she was great. And so I needed a helper with what I was doing, and she had volunteered, and we had built the friendship. And then at this meeting, this breakfast with Bobby Gupta, frankly, he leaned on me a lot more. And I'm not sure exact words, what his exact words were, but my sense was, Greg, this is a stewardship. This is something you can do. You need to do this. You need to start an organization and focus your efforts in a very particular way. Now, I didn't know what that looked like, actually, but now I'm thinking a little bit more carefully about it. Maybe this is an option. And I gathered a bunch of people at my home, including my brother and including my my ex- executive director at Standard Reason Now, Meg Crowley, who was my boss <laughs> at that time at Hope Chapel, and uh, Bobby Gupta, and his brother John Gupta, and another group of people that were people whose opinion I respected. And I said, you know, here's what I was challenged to do. What do you guys think? And they were all excited on the one hand because they thought there was potential in me being more productive given the capabilities I had if I focused, but they didn't know what that looked like. And so their response was, well, we're excited, but we're not sure what we're excited about. And after that meeting, honest to goodness, I thought, okay, great. I dodged the bullet. I don't have to do this. I can go back to doing what I was comfortable doing. But in a, after a day or two, I started thinking about it, and I put pen to paper, and I worked out an idea. I fleshed out a concept. The skeleton of kind of vision, perspective, need, what I was trying to do, that became our first brochure, actually. And what, was, what I was outlining, what also came to be known as Stand to Reason. And on May 1st, 1993, in the Ocean View Room, of Hope Chapel in Hermosa Beach. I gathered 50 or 60 people who had been following me on the radio show. Some had been praying, and I had kind of got a list of people to pray for me doing what I was doing and and uh, would come to different events that I'd have. It was just a little following. That's all it was. But it was people that were important to me and many that I knew personally or that believed in what I was doing. And so I gathered them all together, invited them all out. And we met that afternoon, a Saturday afternoon, May 1st, 1993. And I said, here's my idea. And then I went and explained to them the way I'd structured this concept that I called Stand to Reason. And we actually have a recording of that day. And uh, I'm not sure if we're going to be making it available anywhere 
this year. Amy's shrugging her shoulders, maybe. We'll see, uh, since it is our 30th anniversary. Uh, but it is interesting how where we have arrived in light of the things I said that day, because uh, I, I want to be very candid about something. I did not plan this. I didn't plan anything. Now, of course, that little outlay wasn't planning, but you, you know, and the way I've explained this, I was kind of just falling into it, and I was happy to maintain the status quo, because that was what I was familiar with. That was what was easy. But here was an opportunity to break new ground in a way that was consistent with my spiritual capabilities, my giftings. I'd already gotten a master's degree, or I was just cl- completing it in apologetics, and um, and was thinking about getting a master's in philosophy. I, I, I think Melinda was already in that pro- program. And so, uh, and of course, Melinda was there with a whole bunch of other people that are still around stand a reason and part of our community. That day that I talked about the concept, and at the end of the presentation, which probably took 20, 25 minutes, here's what the need is, here's what I think we can do, I can do, I can contribute to this process. I passed out a blank sheet of paper to everybody there. We gave them a pen, and I asked two questions. First questions, what do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down, whatever. I want your advice. Second question, if it's thumbs up, how much money are you willing to put down to get us off the ground? Virtually everybody, I don't think we had a negative vote. And notice, though, I'm not trying to figure out what God's will was for my life and God is speaking through the voting. No, I was getting counsel from those closest to me who knew me and were advising me about what they thought of this idea. And within a few weeks or a month, we had about, I think we brought in about $17,000, which was enough for us to do our legal work and kind of get rolling. It wasn't for another year that I, or so, that I went on board as a salary person. And we had to get computer things, and actually what happened is Hope Chapel wonderfully gave us a place at the desk I had been working at for, for, for a while, and all the money could go through them and their 501c3 before we got squared away as a 501c3. And then they gave us another office in the back of Hope Chapel, no windows, cinder block walls, very small thing, probably like about 15 by 8. I was just in there the other day reminiscing, and uh, we got to work with a bunch of volunteers and me and Melinda. And Melinda was amazing. We would not have a stand of reason without Melinda Penner. Now, many of you know we don't have Melinda Penner anymore. Um, she's she's lying in a hospital care center where she's been for over five years after suffering a terrible accident in 2017, December 2nd, and has been bedridden ever since. Nevertheless, I want to do proper homage to her in light of the fact that she was the central nervous system of Stand to Reason. All of her administrative skills, her incredible energy, her brilliance, she ended up getting an M.A. in philosophy right alongside me. All of that made Stand to Reason possible, because I just wasn't clever in a bunch of areas. I had ideas about what we can do, about development and organization and vision, such as it was. I never was much of a visionary. That's why I'm a bit surprised at where we come. 
And then we, a couple of years later, we moved to another facility, another church lent us or rented to us, and then we brought Scott Klusendorf on board, and then we brought um, Stephen, uh, Stephen Wagner on board after Scott went out. Well, that was eight years later, so... And then somewhere in the mix, we brought Alan Schliemann on board 18 years ago, right? So maybe that was 12 years after we started. I lose track of this. Amy Hall. Of course, those guys, yeah, Amy's one of the guys. She's okay with that. Those guys were on board with us for quite a while before. We called them unpaid staff. (laughs) We wanted them to think of themselves as staff because not just volunteers, that they could show up whenever they wanted to, but they were very faithful. But we didn't pay them. Until, like, years later, we had to. So we brought them on full-time, and that's how that happened. But at every single stage, it was just, what can we do? Where can we reach out? What opportunities do we have? How can we be faithful with what is placed before us? And how can we get better at doing what we do? How can we be students of our craft? So when I talk about, like, a broken record about being blooming where you're planted, and... Um, being a student of your craft, uh, these aren't concepts that I came up with and then began to employ in my life. These are things that turned out to be patterns in my life that I reflected back on and realized this is what has made all the difference. Or in, as I've said oftentimes, too, to our team, we're not swinging for the fences. We're not trying to hit home runs. We're not trying to be world famous. What are we doing? We're showing up every day. We're the Cal Ripkins. Some of you know who I'm talking about here. We're at every game. We show up. Are we home run hitters? Do we hit grand slams? No. Singles and doubles. Singles and doubles. Singles and doubles. That's it. Now, there have been a few home runs in there, but that is not how we built. We built over 30 years just being steady Eddie, just showing up, being students of our craft, trying to pursue excellence at the level that we were working with whatever we tried to do. And these are all things that God honored. I guess I'm trying to communicate here that in a very real sense, and I'm speaking very genuinely here, I did not build this enterprise. I've been the figurehead. I've been, for a long time, the first the name that people think of when they think of Stand a Reason. I, that's changing, which is good. I must decrease, they must increase. That's healthy. But I don't want too much credit to be given to me. Uh, the much more credit goes to Melinda Penner and all the heavy lifting that she did faithfully for years and years and years, 20, 25 years, roughly, before the accident. And... Uh, And I guess I could say it this way, just to close. Some things have a—take on a life of their own, a life given to them by God. Um, And and we're carried along. Our, Our labors, my labors, Melinda's and others over the years, added to the momentum. I'm not I'm not denying that. I had a role to play. But but I wasn't creating the momentum. And that's the way it's—God was creating that momentum. He was taking the—even the, the short-sighted, faithful efforts of certain 
people dedicated to serve Him, and combining that together in a synergistic way to accomplish something that no one anticipated, certainly not me. So I haven't created this momentum. Uh, And this is the way it's been for me at Stand to Reason all these years. I didn't do this. I was just there when it happened. And in my case, when it all happened, from the very beginning until now, and that has been a very rich experience and a wonderful gift that I have been given not only by God, but by the so many people on our team over the years that have made me look a lot better than I am and have freed me up to do what I can do. But the innumerable, um, uh, uh, what's the best word here, army of clear-thinking Christians who have been a part of our community and growing still and have been financial partners with us to make all of this happen. And it's all worked together, and I have been there with a front row seat (laughs) to watch it take place. I've had a tiger by the tail from its unusual helter-skelter, maybe that's not the right word to use of it, uh, herky-jerky, I guess that's what I meant, herky-jerky beginnings doing a little here, doing a little there, and God, so obviously, as I look back, orchestrating all of the particulars to bring it together to form something wonderful. And I get to offer that something wonderful to you every time I get on the air. And I don't mean, I don't mean me, Mr. Wonderful, I mean all that we have here through me and through the others that uh, you get to benefit from in so many ways. So I want to thank you for being part of our community, whether a short-termer or a long-termer. Some of you listening may have have been listening for 30 years or longer before Stand a Reason. And every once in a while, I run into somebody who has been listening since the early KBRT days, which amazes me because I'm thinking, well, didn't you get bored of me yet? I mean, I, I want, sometimes I wonder, I think I'm running out of things to say that, are, that I haven't said before. But in any event, it's been wonderful being, being part of this with you all, and especially, and I think of the team I have at this moment, what a magnificent group of people. And we keep expanding little by little, very carefully, with more magnificent people so that stand a reason, having a life of its own will continue to prosper even when it's time for me to hang up my cleats. So thank you for 30 years, all of you. Thank you, team. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Let's take a break. Greg Kokel here for 30 years with Stand to Reason.
As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And red pen logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, red pen logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. All right, friends, uh, important announcement here. Tomorrow, that would be Wednesday from the when I, time I'm talking, which would be today when you get this. Today, Wednesday, <laughs> uh, May 3rd at 1 p.m., uh, the inimitable Amy Hall will be on Facebook, right, Amy? And she'll be doing a Q&A on SDR's Facebook page. And you can visit us on Facebook and submit your questions. She will, it won't be live, like interacting with her live, but you will be putting questions down and she'll be responding to the questions that you put down. And you can actually go earlier and uh, put your questions in earlier. And she's happy with that. So uh, that's tomorrow at uh, 1 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, SDR's Facebook. Robbie Lashua will uh, be in the Imperial Valley Apologetics Conference in El Centro, California. Well, he's traveling from Phoenix to El Centro. That's southern. That's El Centro's right on the on the border with Mexico. Uh, Imperial Valley Apologetics Conference on Saturday, May twenty. So that's coming up in a few weeks. Mark your calendars if you're down in uh, in uh, in the south end of Southern California, and you'd like to be part of that. Uh, Mr. Barnett, Mr. B, will be speaking at the Unapologetic Conference in Lubbock, Texas, on Saturday, May 20. And I don't have all the details here except for what I'm reading, here, but you can get the details by going to um, 
Okay, let me, I'm supposed to see this. Oh, here it is. It's uh, str.org slash events. str.org. We make that str.org slash events. There you go. Amy will also be leading a workshop on Scripture memorization. Really? Do you memorize Scripture? Oh, good for you. Uh, I know you know a lot of Scripture, but I never was good at memorizing I know a lot too, but thankfully I never had to memorize it. The stuff I know sticks. Now, there are some passages that I did memorize, like Psalm 51, but I have a hard time remembering that because I tried to memorize it so it's not as sticky as the other stuff that just sticks all by itself, which is quite a bit, thankfully. you know. Um, but most people don't have the sticky thing going. They just have the memory thing going, and that's what you're going to be talking about, right? So uh, that's at the Women in Apologetics Conference, June 9 and 10. That's my birthday, June 10. Anaheim, California. Theme of the conference is orthodoxy. Hmm. You can learn more at womeninapologetics.com slash 2023-W-I-A-C-O-N-F, like Women in Apologetics Conference. All right? So about we'll have more announcements about that. I'm always le- glad when Amy gets on the road somehow and goes before a group, because she has so much to offer. And many of you know that because you listen to Amy. Um and I, on on hashtag SDRS, I'm pausing a little bit because someone told us recently, oh, it was Frank Turk last week. You know, why don't you have Amy go first? Because she's got all the good stuff. You know, she's first team. You're second league. You know, you can just pick up the scraps if there's anything left when Amy's done. So uh, and that's a good point. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see if there's anything else here. I, I, I'm going to be at the Orange County uh, Rescue Mission on Monday, coming up, doing their chapel or something like that. I don't know the details here, but uh, you can find it at uh, str.org slash events. Orange County Rescue Mission, they have, a, they have a wonderful work there. My wife and I support them. And that's where Natasha Crane, who many of you know, read her books, and she's been on the program, worked for us, spoken for us. I'll see Natasha, I think, in July, as we are both uh, working with Frank Turk at CIA. But I will see her on Monday with her husband as I speak there. And I think I'm talking about taking Jesus seriously. So all the details you can find on our website. Um, One last thing is applications are open for a limited time only for our STR outpost directors. And this week there was a couple of meetings from different regions, and Robbie had three of them. And uh, I got to kind of crash the party for about five minutes and say hi and offer some thoughts before they got down to business and I went on to other things. So it was great to see um, those three different groups of, of leaders that are taking a stand, moving out, and blooming where they're planted. And you can do the same. Uh, you, all you have to do is go to str.org slash outposts to learn more. We already have 50 active groups. If you want to be a leader, you got to jump through the hoops. you got to give us your, your bona fides and, and, um, and take it from there. Robbie will work with you on that. But it's an opportunity to have an outpost, which is a, um, a local community of, of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about classical Christianity, and also seeking to help others by giving them the answers to the hard questions that they learn in the STR outpost. So um, it's led by a qualified director. Uh, we provide the STR content for you to get you going, make it plug and play, 
And uh, all the information is at str.org slash outpost. I think that's right. Okay, there we go. We're going to have some uh, open mic calls now. And um, I'm looking at Jono's question about Roman Catholicism. Can we bring Jono up? How's that? Maybe, kind of. That's it. I can see it. Oh, one, we're working on it. Sign in to Google Voice. Okay, I'm watching. Oh, go to a different one. Oh, okay. The, oh, oh, all right. I didn't have a big... Uh, let me... Let me. <laughs> you caught me unawares. Let go of my unawares. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, that's from high school. That's oh, That joke is over 50 years old. That joke is almost 60 years old. Oh, man, that's crazy. Okay. All right. How about Greg Holden? All right. Um, about YouTube videos about universalism. Can we do that? Yeah, there he is. Hey, Greg. Hi, Greg. I'm an elder at my church, and recently we've had an issue with um, a few people who have become convinced of Christian universalism. We've tried to discuss this with them, and they distinguish themselves from Unitarian Universalists by saying that they believe the only way to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, but that ultimately everyone will accept that in faith, whether now or in the future in hell, and that everyone will be reconciled in heaven. Every time we try to present a scripture, they have a response and the main person that's influenced this thought is a guy named Robin Perry, who has uh, some YouTube videos that are very um, challenging for people in our church and also challenging for me as a lay person, uh, a lay elder, I should say, uh-huh. to, um, to refute. If you have any insight into Christian universalism and how I can respond, please I would uh, enjoy anything you have to say. Okay, Greg, thank you so much for this question, and I'm distressed by it. Um, And that's not your fault. I'm distressed that you're having to deal with this issue. I don't know anything about uh, Robin Perry, and uh, I'm very gratified that you, as an elder, are stepping up to do what elders are supposed to do, and that is to refute those who contradict. Sound doctrine, uh, I think that's either in... Titus chapter 1, or 1 Timothy, because this is, there are wolves in the church, and the, and the, the elders are the protectors of the sheep from the wolves, okay? Now, I don't know the arguments that are being offered here, so specifically I can't say, well, this is what's wrong with these arguments. The view that you have characterized is uh, it sounds like a variation of, of inclusivism. Now, when it comes to salvation, uh, you have the view, you have exclusivism, the idea that a person, um, that Jesus is the exclusive source of salvation and the means of salvation and the object of faith for salvation. That is, Jesus is necessary for the forgiveness of sins of anyone, and in order to experience the forgiveness of sins, you have to put your faith in him. 
And for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, I don't know if this verse is on the list of verses that uh, Robin Perry deals with, but I'm just thinking of a, a handful of these that are that are really are are you know like no duh right and a bunch of them are in John chapter three. This verse, that famous verse that we're talking about, John three sixteen, that we all know, does seem to link in a straightforward fashion salvation to Jesus, who we benefit from through belief in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. But let me keep reading. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Now, just to be clear, God did not send the Son into the world to do the judgment. Eventually, He will be the one who judges. We see Him in the book of Revelation doing that. But that is not the calling or the purpose of his visitation the first time. This is the point that Jesus himself is making in John 3. He did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And then what's the qualification? He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. And I continue, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So Jesus is pretty pretty direct in that regard, and later in the chapter um, says, he who believes, last verse, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, this is what we're talking about, right? Eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, I don't know, maybe these people who believe in this kind of type of universalism um, have rejoinders regarding these passages, but I'm just saying, as a straight-ahead reading of the passage, I actually don't see how, just in John 3, we can miss the point that there are two alternatives, which, by the way, Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, the broad gate leading to destruction, the narrow gate leading to life. I mean, Duh. It, I, I just, I don't see how can there, be, there can be so much confusion on this. But um, nevertheless, here we, here we have it. It's just, it's straight ahead. You believe in the Son, you get eternal life. You don't obey the Son, and I think the obedience here is the obedience of faith. You will not see life, because this is in parallelism, so it's a parallel contrast. But the wrath of God abides on him, and we see that wrath being played out in Revelations 20. Okay, so um, Tim Barnett and I wrote a couple of articles uh, in Solid Ground. You can find it at str.org. And they're dealing with the concept of the eternality uh, of hell, the eternal suffering and punishment, which it is a little bit 
uh, awkward to find myself to be in the position of being an apologist for, because I don't like this. Nevertheless, uh, this seems to be what Scripture teaches. The articles are called Hell Interrupted, Part 1, 2, and 3. All right, Hell Interrupted, Part 1, 2, and 3. You can find them at str.org, and it takes three um, issues of solid ground to, to cover the ground um, even moderately adequately, just so the points are, are clear in the way we're making the case from Scripture. Uh, by the way, I mentioned in a version of inclusivism because uninclusivism is different from pluralism. Pluralism is everybody gets to God through their own religion. All religions are equally valid. Um, there are problems with that, even coherence problems I've talked about before. But um, people who are inclusivists say, well, yes, everybody gets to God, but not without Jesus. And the 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 twist here is that that Jesus is necessary in God's bookkeeping. The blood of Christ is necessary to forgive sins, and they say, then they think all of the one-way verses are subsumed under this piece of their theology. They're not. But in any event, you could be a good Jew and reject Jesus and still be saved by Jesus. Now, that isn't what Peter thought in Acts chapter 4. There's salvation and none other, for there's no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. Now, the inclusivists will say, well, yeah, that's true. But they don't have to believe in order to benefit. Well, if they don't have to believe in order to benefit, then why was Peter saying this to Jews? And suffering at the lash because of it. Okay, so so that isn't, it, it just isn't going to wash. And for a number of reasons, that's just one in the Scripture. This is a little twist that says something similar, that all these people are saved by the blood of Jesus, even if they don't believe in Jesus. But it's not just all these religious folk. That would be more of a standard inclusivism. It is apparently everybody eventually. Well, it, it just doesn't, doesn't say that. Now, here's something to be aware of. If, if a whole, whole communion of believers has read the text for thousands of years and come with a unified understanding expressed in the Apostles' Creed early on and uh, about the reality of hell and that some people go to heaven and some people go to hell, how is it that 2,000 years later, all of these verses, somebody's able to find all these exceptions with, that it just doesn't mean what it seems to say. So, again, without having read The Case by Robin Perry, I have actually done my own research on this, dealing with other uh, other people who t tend to be, actually, um, they take the other side of the coin, and they are annihilationists. No, no, but in either case, no one's going to suffer in hell forever. Either everybody goes to heaven, or all those that would have been in hell just get wiped out, and so they're not in hell, or don't go to heaven, or not in hell, they just get wiped out, annihilated. But it amounts to the same thing, nobody in eternal conscious torment. Okay, now the question is, ultimately, what does the text say? All right, what does the text say? 
Now, as for, as an ecclesia, ecclesiastical issue, um, Greg, as an elder, I think you do the best that you can with the people there regarding their views. You give them the scriptures, like I just offered a sampling of, and I guarantee you're going to find a lot more on, on online, and there, there are a number of books that deal with this, because the, the whole notion of, um, of annihilationism is getting more popular even in Christian circles. Okay, but this, goes, this isn't just annihilationism. This goes further. This says everybody's going to heaven. Now, if everybody's ultimately going to heaven, well, it's a bummer for those people who take longer to get there, okay? Because they got to go through some kind of grief or some kind of punishment, but eventually everybody's going to be saved. Can you see how that point of view is going to undermine the sense of immediacy people have to either preach the gospel or believe the gospel? Okay, well, I'm not going to worry about that. First of all, I don't like it. It gets in the way of my life, blah, 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 blah. And if it is true, well, like these guys say, I'm going to end up in heaven anyway. Maybe take a circuitous route, and it'll be a little painful, but I'm still going to get there. No eternal conscious torment, nothing to worry about. See the problem. And so this is a dangerous doctrine for that reason. It's, it's actually worse than annihilationism. Because if a person thinks that if he doesn't believe what he needs to believe or trust Jesus as he ought to to rescue him, then nothing bad will befall him. It's just that nothing good will befall him. I actually never thought of it that way before. Yes, you just get annihilated. You get wiped out. You're gone. Guess what? That's what atheists believe, and they're happy with it. Yeah, when I die, that's it. I'm gone. No big. I'm not around to worry about me not being around. There's not going to be any anguish, because I won't be around to anguish. So that's not so bad. It's, I think it's false. I think it's dangerous. But to tell people that, you know, they're eventually going to get to heaven, I think that is even worse. Okay, so what, from my perspective, I think these people have to be addressed uh, individually, as a group, however, and you offer the point of view, and if they say, well, we don't agree with you, and this is time to say, okay, then you need to find a church that does agree with you. In fact, uh, Paul's words are uh, actually more strong in Titus or possibly First Timothy. They must be silenced for the upsetting whole groups of people. All right? Now, you don't have to do it with a heavy hand, but you can do it with a firm hand. This isn't what we believe. And if you believe other than we believe, then this isn't your church. Okay? And you may even need to address this from the pulpit. But uh, what you do not want to allow these people to do is on an issue that is really important, having them upset the congregation, which apparently it's been doing. Okay? So that would be my my counsel, Greg. I do think this is one of those things that is has enough gravity 
that you say, okay, th- this, this is an issue of membership in our community. We're not going to condemn you to hell or anathematize you or whatever. Maybe you love the Lord. Okay, but not here. All right. Okay, let's see. I'm checking out. Oh, we got about five minutes. I don't know if we have five minutes worth of time for something else. Do we? We have a short one. Let me look. Do we have Jono up? Yes, we do. Let's go to Jono then. Why do Roman Catholics view tradition as authoritative? Hi, Greg. My name is Jono, and I live in New Cumberland, Pennsylvania. I have a question about the Roman Catholic concept of tradition. As one with a Roman Catholic background, I'm hoping you can shed some light on how Catholics use this word, this term, tradition. I was told once that the Bible is not more authoritative than the church and tradition because the Bible itself is just tradition. But how can tradition be authoritative at all? Uh, like you have Christmas stocking tradition. In my home, we grew up with Christmas stockings and gifts were opened on Christmas morning. And in my wife's home, when she was growing up, they yeah. dig into their stockings on Christmas Eve <laughs> and then open gifts Christmas morning. Mm-hmm. One is not more authoritative than the other. And it'd be, it would be seen as foolish to say that one was right and the other was wrong. It's subjective, it seems to me, which, like, ice cream flavors are good or bad. Mm-hmm. I feel like Roman Catholics must give tradition a different definition or a different level of importance than our Christmas stocking tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it no more than people's holiday traditions, not right or wrong, or is it more than that? They tend to trust their eternity to it. So how do they understand the concept of tradition? And then how can I show the difference between tradition and the objective truth of Scripture in a way that would be persuasive to someone who perhaps has grown up as a devout Roman Catholic? Mm-hmm. Thanks, Greg, and many thanks you're, for you and your team there at SDR. Oh, well, you're so, you're so uh, welcome, Jono. I'm sorry. I'm going to give you the short shrift just for time right here, for time's sake. Um, but um, the Roman Catholic view is that there are four sources of authority. One is the Bible. One is the teaching magisterium of the Church. The third one is the Pope when he speaks from the chair, ex cathedra, and then there is holy tradition. Uh, Though I was raised a Catholic myself, I, I don't think I can give you a definitive reason why holy tradition has the role it has there. For someone to say, well, the Bible is just tradition, that really mystifies me. The Bible's just a tradition. Well, if the Bible is just a tradition, then that is a tradition, the words of Scripture coming directly from the apostles that we think are God's Word, and you agree with that. The Roman Catholics would agree with us on that regard. Um, I don't think that's a fair way to describe it, because the the glass, grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Uh, I don't, it's not the word of tradition stands forever. It's the word of God. So the scripture characterizes itself, in, in, I think, in a little bit more noble way than mere tradition. But I don't think they're thinking of tradition like the Christmas stockings. I think they're thinking of tradition like teachings that have been received from other teachers in the church and passed down. That's the way they characterize it. And here is where I think the idea of apostolic session plays a, succession plays a role. I mean, the fact is, in the second century especially, heresy started to spring up. You got the Marcionites, you have the Gnostics, you've got, uh, well, the Arians came a little bit later, but nevertheless, you had to have some people that stood up and clarified from what the scriptures that the body of Christ in general agreed were authoritative, 
and stand against the heresies. And so you have people like Papias or Irenaeus or Justin Martyr, and these are disciples of the apostles or disciples of the disciples. There were a bunch of them in that uh, second century. And this, these are the people people looked to for proper understanding of theological truth. And so they had a higher role in there, and they looked to these people I don't think they called it they called them apostles at the time but nevertheless the notion of going to these people um that were steeped in the truth to get the information that they had received from the apostles the interesting thing is they gave that information but then they kept quoting the sources and the sources were the text and you see a massive characterizations of texts in their different writings um so, uh, but I think that there were more things that came out of this that were not in the text that began to be viewed as authoritative, and this is uh, holy tradition. So, um, m- maybe that's the source of it. It's kind of a guess here. But I think what the problem is, of course, by what record do we go? And uh, the, if we're just going by what a group of people have passed on and said, we have no fixed method of assessing them except for people said that. Now, if you want to apply authority simply to those, apostolic authority, scriptural authority, God's authority to it, well, you can assert that. But demonstrating that it's the case is something different. We have the scriptures. They want to take scriptures and add tradition, etc., They need to justify that. I'd rather stick with what we both agree on and make sure that any other so-called traditions are justified by the text itself. How to convince them? I don't know. That just depends on how close-minded they are. Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye.